I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. No one displayed such patience and compassion with people as Jesus did, and yet there's a certain kind of person that Jesus couldn't and can't tolerate. There's a certain kind of person that makes Christ sick, that nauseates Him. You say, well, it's probably the drunkard or the drug addict or the prostitute, someone who's enslaved to their vice, that's probably the person that makes Christ sick. You say, well, it's probably the atheist, the person who would never darken the door of a church, that's probably the person who makes Christ sick. You say, well, maybe it's the out-and-out sinner, the person who's on death row, that's probably the person who makes Christ sick. You know, interestingly enough, Jesus was actually comfortable with those kind of people. The Gospels indicate that he spent much of his time with sinners and publicans. Those people were not repulsive to Christ. He loved to be around them. That kind of person didn't make Christ sick. The person that makes Christ sick might not make you and I sick. Let me paint his portrait for you. He has money. He dresses nice. He's respectable. He's self-confident. He's self-sufficient. He thinks he's okay. In fact, if you asked him, he would say he had no needs at all. And there was a church full of people like that in a town in Asia Minor in 95 A.D. They would probably impress you initially, but they nauseated Christ. You know why? It was because of their indifference. It was because of their mediocrity. It was because of their lukewarmness. They were religious, but they had no real, vital, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. They gave lip service to the gospel, but it hadn't changed their lives. They could take it or leave it. And when it came right down to it, they didn't really believe that they needed Jesus. There are a lot of churches like that today that go through the motions without real commitment. There are a lot of people like that today who say, well, Jesus is okay on Sunday, but I don't need Him the rest of the week. Maybe you're that way. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you come to church. You go through the motions. You've always thought you were okay, but there's something missing. If you're really honest, you don't have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You are lukewarm. Well, if you're in that condition this morning, I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. This is the last of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This is the church that made Christ sick. Notice verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. Now, Laodicea was the chief city in Phrygia. It was located on the Lycus River about 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was founded about 250 B.C. by Antiochus II, and he named it after his wife. It was a wealthy city, widely known as a banking center. In 60 A.D., a serious earthquake struck Laodicea and wiped out the city, and without even seeking any help from Rome, they restored the city with the private wealth of their citizens. 
It was a center for commerce, aided by three major highways that crossed through it. It was known for its clothing industry made from the wool of its famous black sheep. They also had a medical center there where they produced a medicine known as Phrygian powder, widely sought for treatment of eye ailments. And so it was a self-sufficient city noted for three things, its wealth, its fashion industry, and its eye medicine. Now we know less about the church there. Paul writes about them in Colossians 2.1 and he says that he was concerned about Laodicea. And he had reason to be concerned because when John writes in 95 AD, they've got some real problems. This is the worst of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And Christ doesn't have one good word to say about this church. It's the liberal church. It's the apostate church. It's the false church. This is the church that isn't a church. This is a church with Christ on the outside knocking, trying to get in. He's not even there. And as he addresses this church, Christ introduces himself in three ways in verse 14. He says, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. He introduces himself three ways. The first way he introduces himself is as the Amen. And this is the same word translated verily or truly in your Bible uh, at the beginning of a statement. In fact, it's used in tandem 25 times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says verily, verily, or truly, truly. The word means true. It's the same word used at the end of a prayer, amen. You probably never thought about what amen means. You probably thought it means the end. Open your eyes. Uh, That's not what it means. It means so be it, or it is true. And so it's a guarantee or an affirmation of the truth of a statement. And this is the only time in the Bible where it's ever used as a title. And Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the stamp of guarantee. I am the seal. I am the so be it for the promises of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God are in Christ are yes, and in Christ they are amen. They are true. You know, so much of the so-called church today doubts the truth of God's word and denies the promises of God, and doesn't really take seriously what God says, Jesus writes to a church like that and he says, I am the amen. I am the one who makes it all true. I'm the one who verifies the word of God. I am the affirmation and the confirmation of the promises of God. And then secondly, he introduces himself as the faithful and true witness. Not only is he the guarantee of the truth, he is the communicator of the truth. He is announcing and declaring and testifying. He says, I am the witness. And as such, he is true and faithful in contrast to this church that is neither true nor faithful. You know, the idea of a true witness is kind of foreign to our culture. If you watch television, you watch some of these Senate hearings, and they'll have a guy sitting there at the Senate hearing, and they'll ask him questions, and they'll ask him the question, and then he'll lean over and whisper with his lawyer for a while. And then he'll come back and give some kind of guarded answer to the question. We're not used to having true 
witnesses. But Jesus says, I am the faithful and true witness. Jesus says, I tell you the truth about God. I tell you the truth about myself. And I tell you the truth about you. And then thirdly, he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. And that word beginning is the Greek word arche. It means source or origin. It's the same word used later in Revelation 21.6 and 22.13 where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the source of all creation. And evolutionists today talk about a first cause. They, they talk about we want to uncover the first cause. Well, the first cause has already been uncovered. Because Jesus says, I am the first cause of the creation of God. John 1.3 says, all things came into being through Him. Colossians 1.16, for in Him all things were created. He is the creator of the universe. And to this church that was so self-sufficient and so independent that didn't think they needed anyone or anything, Christ says, I am the source of everything. And you see a contrast as he introduces himself because he's writing to a church full of false professors and he says, I'm the amen, I'm the truth. He's writing to a church of unfaithful witnesses and he says, I'm the faithful witness. And he's writing to a church that didn't need anything and he says, I am the source of everything you need. And so having established his credibility, Christ now speaks to the church in Laodicea and what you'll notice initially at the beginning of this letter is that there is no commendation. You won't find one. Christ starts out with his condemnation in verses 15 and 16. And these are cutting words. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Christ says, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're lukewarm and I will spew you out of my mouth. I want you to think about something that makes you want to vomit because that's the word used here. Uh, maybe for you, it's, you've been working in the yard and you're, you're, you're tired and, and you're thirsty and you go up to the hose and you pick up the hose and you turn it on and you put it in your mouth and you forget that it was laying there in the sun sort of getting lukewarm, and unless you're real thirsty, you're going to go and spew it out of your mouth. That's the word used here. Or, or think about something that you can't keep down. At Mid-South, we had an iron gut competition, and we challenged some of our young men. I don't see either of them here, uh, but we gave them some 7-Up, and then we put some things in there to sort of enhance the drink, like uh, sardines and blue cheese and warm yogurt and uh, Gerber's squash. And then they were to drink this. And we had a lot of spewing going on in that competition. Well, think about what it is. For, for me, it's grits. I was born in Nashville, raised in Nashville. They kept sticking it on my plate, and I just kept saying, Ugh. I never tasted it. But if I did, I know what I would do. I would spew it out. Okay. Think about whatever it is for you that makes you feel that way, and that's the feeling that Jesus has about the church in Laodicea. 
Now, why does he feel that way about them? He feels that way about them because they're lukewarm. Now, who is it that he's talking about? Who is it that's lukewarm? Who is it that makes Christ want to spew them out of his mouth? Well, some say this is lukewarm Christians. And if we're honest, we have to say that we often find ourselves not as hot as we would like to be in our commitment to Christ. And this passage would preach real well if I did it that way because I could really make you feel really miserable this morning if I directed it toward you. But I really don't feel comfortable with that because I don't think that's who he's talking about here because Christ doesn't vomit Christians out of his mouth no matter how distasteful they get. Jesus said in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not, what? Cast out. That's his promise. And that's the promise we have as Christians, that no matter how distasteful I become to him, he promises that he'll never cast me away. He'll never spit me out. You say, well, who's he talking about here? Well, he talks about three groups. He talks about the hot and the cold and the lukewarm. So maybe if we define those groups, we'll understand who we're talking about. Who's the hot? Well, the hot would be true believers. The hot would be those who have spiritual life, those with genuine spiritual fervor, those that have God the Holy Spirit within them actively producing fruit in their lives. God has transformed them from cold to hot. They're believers. The cold, on the other hand, are those who are cold to the things of God. The gospel leaves them unmoved. They're openly and blatantly uncommitted. They're not making any pretense about it. If you ask them, they say, I'm not a believer. No pretense, no hypocrisy there, nothing. So who's the lukewarm? Well, the lukewarm are those who are not hot because they're not believers, but they're not cold because they would profess to be Christians. They're professing Christians who play religious games with God, but there's no reality in their life. They've been touched in some way by the Gospel, but they don't really belong to Jesus Christ. They know the truth, but they refuse to be honest with the truth, and they're satisfied to simply go through the motions and live a life of hypocrisy and live a life of religious simulation. If you want to put them in the category, they're in the same category as the Pharisee of Jesus' day. Self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-confident, self-assured, professing to have everything together when in fact they have nothing together. And if you look carefully in the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus reserved his most trenchant words for them. To their faces, Jesus called them hypocrites, serpents, fools, whitewashed tombs. He called them as a group a brood of vipers because they nauseated Christ. Just as they continue to do today, sitting in churches, folding their pious hands. And the church in Laodicea was full of them, and Jesus said, I'd rather you were cold than lukewarm. It's an interesting statement. I would rather you be cold than be lukewarm. Why is that? Because there's a chance to reach a person who's cold. 
A person who's never been touched by the Gospel, who makes no religious pretense, who makes no claims, who offers no defense, is a person that can be reached with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's little chance of reaching a person who's lukewarm because he's got barriers all around him. Haven't you found that to be true? The religious person is the hardest person to reach for Jesus Christ. Because he thinks he's okay. And he thinks he's right with God. And he thinks he's got everything together. He doesn't think he has any needs. He's like the Pharisee. He's not looking for a physician because he doesn't think he's sick. And he's not looking for a Savior because he doesn't think that he's a sinner. He's self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-confident, self-assured. And if you asked him, he would say he's right with God. But in reality, he is self-deceived. And that's spelled out in verse 17. Notice what it says. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I want you to mark some words in that verse. And notice the contrast. Mark the words, you say, and then later in the verse, mark the words, you are. Because there was a difference between what they say and what they actually are. But that's not their biggest problem. Because everybody really finds themselves in that position in light of God's Word. God's truth shines on me and I find that I'm not really what I claim to be. That's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is in the words, and you do not know. There's a difference between what they say and what they are, but they don't even know there's a difference. They are self-deceived. They are believing what they're saying. They have played the hypocrite so well that they've convinced themselves. And they have convinced themselves that they are what they claim to be, even though the truth is that they are something quite different. And what are they saying? They're saying, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, and I don't need anything. Now, doesn't that sound like the church today? that's been infiltrated by an age of materialism and secular humanism? Doesn't that sound like the the church today? We're rich and we don't need anything. We can do it all ourselves. That's materialism and that's humanism. Church today is so well supported and organized and oiled and maintained that they don't even need God. They are self-sufficient and totally content. But Jesus says... You don't know your real condition. Let me give you a glimpse of what you really are. And he tells them five things about themselves. He says, number one, you are wretched. You say you don't need anything, but you need everything. And the word wretched means you're hopelessly unsalvageable. You're wasted. You're vile. You're utterly sinful. It's the word Paul used at the end of Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. It's sort of the extreme end of it. He says you're wretched. And then he says you're miserable. You think you're in a position where people ought to envy you. In fact, you are the most pitiful of all people. And then he goes on to say, you're poor. They boasted in their riches, but Jesus says you're a pauper. 
in what really matters. And the verse that came to my mind was Jesus' words in Mark 8, 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? That was happening in Laodicea. And then he says you're blind. You think you've got 20-20 vision, but you can't even see who you really are. You're so spiritually blind that you can't even see yourself. And then fifthly, he says, you're naked. You think you're all clothed in religion. You're wrapped in your religious robes, burning your candles, waving your symbols, offering your chants, reading your creeds. But Jesus says, you're naked. Quite a contrast, isn't it? You're saying, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I need nothing. And Jesus says, the truth is, you're pitifully filthy and poor and blind and naked. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't end the letter there because he's got some advice for the lukewarm church and the lukewarm individual. And that's his counsel in verses 18 to 20. Notice verse 18. Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Three things Jesus says I want you to come and buy from me. Number one is gold. Seneca the Roman said, money never made anyone rich. And Jesus would agree with that. Because this church that had so much riches, Jesus says, you're really poor. And if you want real gold, you need to come and buy it from me. And then you'll be rich. You say, well, what is this gold that Jesus is talking about? Well, I'm not really sure. You know, the Bible talks about certain things that are more precious than gold. First um, Peter chapter 1 says our faith is more precious than gold. First Peter chapter 1 says the blood of Christ is more precious than gold. Psalm 119 says the Word of God is more precious than gold. There are certain things more precious than gold, and that may be what Jesus is talking about here. Or He may just be talking about all of those things that fit into the category of treasures in heaven. Those eternal spiritual things that God only can provide for us. And he, he says about the gold that he will give, that it's refined by the fire. I think he says that because one of the things about material things in this world is that you can always lose it. It can always be lost by fire, which in Scripture talks about trials. A trial can come into your life and take everything you've got. And ultimately, this world is going to be consumed by fire, which will destroy everything material that we see. So he says, you're hanging on to gold that you can lose through trials or you will ultimately lose when this world is consumed. I'll give you gold that's only refined by the fire. What does trials do? What do trials do to the blessings of God that he gives to me? They refine them. They enhance them. They improve the things that God gives to me as I go through trials. And ultimately, that fire that comes upon the earth isn't going to touch the things that God gives me because they're eternal. And so he says, I'll give you gold that's refined by the fire. And then the second thing he mentions is white garments. And white garments in Scripture speak of righteousness. And they didn't have any. 
They were clothed in self-righteousness, and Christ says, in reality, you're naked and your shame is showing. Just like Adam and Eve when they went and put the fig leaves on because of their shame. These people had clothed themselves in self-righteousness and it hadn't dealt with the guilt in their life. And just as God provided a covering for Adam and Eve, He offers white garments to those who come to Him. His righteousness to cover us. And then the third thing He mentions is eye salve. And of course, as you can see here, Christ is playing on the industry of Laodicea. He says, you're big on gold, but you're poor. You need to buy gold from me. You're big on clothing, fashion, but you're naked. And you need to come to me for white garments. And you're big on ISAV because the medical school in Laodicea made it. They were famous for it. People came from all around to get this ISAV to heal their eyes. And Jesus says, you're big on ISAV, but you're blind. And you need to come to me and buy spiritual ISAV that I might open your spiritual eyes. And so three things, gold, white garments, and ISAV. You know, some people are troubled by this verse because it says, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me. And some people are troubled by the fact that, that Jesus says, I want you to buy it from me. And we say, well, I thought the gospel was free. I didn't think there was a price. Well, I think one of the things Jesus is doing here is he's simply speaking the language of the people of Laodicea because these people were merchants. And they operated in deals all day long. And they were buying and selling all the time. And, and their, their minds were always on gold and, and clothing and ISAV and selling it. And he says, I want you to come to me and buy from me. And he's simply using their language. But I think he's also implying something else. And he's probably referring to a passage in the Old Testament. If you just want to look at it, it's Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 makes a statement similar to what's made here in, in Revelation. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come if you have no money, because you can still buy. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy? Now he writes to these people, and they had money. But he says, come and buy without money. Buy from me. And of course, in relationship to the gospel, the price has been paid because Jesus paid the price on the cross of Calvary. But God speaks the language of the people and He says, you're, you're taking your money and you're trying to buy everything that satisfies you. Come and buy from me. You don't even need money. Just come and buy from me what really satisfies the water of life. And Jesus says the same thing. Using the analogies of what they were really into in material things, He says, come and buy those things from me. The price has been paid by Christ. The only price involved for you and me is mentioned back here in Revelation chapter 3. And it's in verse 19 where he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous therefore and repent. Jesus says, I'm writing this rebuke to you because I love you. 
Here's the church he's about to spew out of his mouth and he still loves them. And he says, I'm writing this rebuke because I love you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be zealous and I want you to repent. You know what the cost is for you and me? It's to repent. And repent means to turn around. It means to let go of what I'm holding on to and to turn around and to come to God. That's the price involved in salvation. Some of us think of repentance as being sorry, being sad. That's not really the idea behind repentance. Repentance means to turn around. In fact, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it tells us there that sorrow leads to repentance, and repentance leads to salvation. So sorrow is not, in fact, repentance. You can be very sorry for your situation and your sin. That doesn't mean you have turned around. I was out in Seattle speaking out there. There was a fellow there. He was going into 12th grade this year. Football player. He's also very involved in a gang out there, which was something very new to me. Uh, Samoan fellow, real good-looking guy and everything. And uh, <clears throat> I gave an invitation on Wednesday night. And he stayed behind weeping, just weeping, just kept weeping and weeping. And a couple counselors dealt with him, and he just couldn't stop crying. He couldn't even communicate with him. He was, he was weeping so much. And uh, just kept saying he was sorry for the things he had done. Uh, but he didn't make a commitment to Christ. And everybody in the camp was excited that, you know, so-and-so, Mike, got saved. And... Uh, but I went and talked to Mike the next morning, and he, and he said to me, he said, you know what? He said, I'm standing on the edge of a big cliff, and, and he said, down below is hell, and I can see that everything I'm doing is taking me right there. And he said, the side is kind of crumbling. I don't know who counseled with him. They did a great job. He said, the side is kind of crumbling in on me, and I'm up against the ledge, and I know that's where I'm going. And he said, there's a bridge there, and it's the cross. It's Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm just not ready to step out on him. He had been sorry for his sins. But he, but he said to me, I, I just can't let go of the things I'm involved in. I don't think I can do it. That's what he told me Thursday morning. Fortunately, on Friday night, he made that commitment to Jesus Christ. His sorrow for his sin brought him finally to the point where he let go, repented, turned, and came to Christ. See, that's the process. Repentance involves sorrow, but sorrow is not repentance. Repentance is to turn around. And sorrow can be something very emotionally freeing, but it doesn't involve reality with God. And we need to understand, sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. And Jesus says to them, be zealous and repent. The word zealous means to be totally committed to one thing. They have been totally committed to gold and clothing and their business, and making money. And he says, I want you to be totally committed to the fact that I can provide what you need. I want you to be zealous, and then I want you to repent. Let go of what you're hanging on to, and come to me. And then Jesus gives an invitation, and it's a familiar one in verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. That's a verse I use a lot with people, individuals, uh, when I'm explaining the gospel to him. I've, I've had theologians tell me that uh, I can't use this verse because it's not a verse 
designed for individuals. It's a verse designed for the church. Well, if you look carefully at the verse, you'll see that Jesus is, is not really knocking to get into the church. In fact, this is not really a church because Jesus is not inside. If Jesus is not inside, then they're not a church because a church is made up of individuals with Jesus in their life. So he's outside knocking, but if you'll notice carefully the verse, notice the pronouns. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He's knocking generally on the door of this church, but he wants to come into the lives of individuals. It's a personal verse. And so he's, he's applying it personally, and he's also applying it universally because he says anyone can open the door. And the invitation is given this way. We see Jesus knocking at the door. Jesus is not a gate crasher. He waits at the door, and he's knocking. He doesn't push himself in where he's not wanted. He's knocking. But not only is he knocking, we find also in verse 20 that he is calling because he says, if anyone hears my voice. And so he's at the door and he's knocking and he's calling out to us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've heard Christ knocking. And you hear Christ calling to you individually. What do you need to do? He says, if anyone will open the door. Open the door. What does that mean? Open the door means simply open your life up. It's the idea of being willing. It's the idea of simply opening yourself up to Christ. He's knocking. He's calling. He wants to come in. The only condition is that you open the door. That's your will. That's releasing your will to allow Him to come in. And then the promise of what He will do is, He says, I will come in and I will dine with Him and He with me. In the first century, dining was a big thing because they didn't, they didn't have three big meals a day. They had one big meal, usually in the evening. And they came together and they actually laid around the table because they planned to be there a while. And they ate together and they fellowshiped together. They shared together. And Jesus is saying, I will come into you and I will have genuine fellowship with you. We will dine together and I will provide you with spiritual nourishment. What a promise. And then we see his challenge finally in verse 21. He says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Not only will we fellowship with him now, but we have the promise of reigning with him then. And it's as if he's saying, I will come into you in the evening, and we will fellowship through the evening and through the night, and then when the morning comes and the dawn breaks and the kingdom begins, we'll reign together. What a promise. Fellowship now, reigning with Him then. And then he closes this letter with those familiar words that we've seen in each of the other letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not just a letter to the Laodicean church in the first century. It's a letter to the churches in general and to people in general who find themselves in the same condition, who are lukewarm, who profess to be Christians but are just going through the motions. And Jesus says you need to realize, first of all, who you are, that you've got a need. You are poor and blind 
and naked spiritually. And then you need to repent. You need to let go of what you're holding on to and turn around. And then you need to open the door and let Christ in. There's a painting that hangs at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's by Holman Hunt. You've probably seen it or you've seen copies of it. It's called Jesus, the Light of the World. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ with a lamp in His hand and there's a door and there are vines and weeds that have grown up all around the door and He's got His fist doubled up and He's knocking. And if you ever look closely at the picture, you've noticed that there isn't a doorknob on the outside. And when the painter was asked why he did that, he said because the doorknob's on the inside because the individual has to open it. And that's true of the Lord Jesus. He's knocking and He's calling, but you've got the doorknob. And you're the one who opens it. His promise is, if you'll open it, I'll come in. And today, if you find yourself in this condition, Jesus is knocking and He's calling and He's waiting for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You today for this letter that describes for us those who are lukewarm. And Father, if there are those sitting here today who have made a profession of faith in Christ, but maybe it's not real, Lord, I pray that You would convict their hearts today. Bring them to really realize their true condition before You and that they might truly repent and turn and open the door, Lord Jesus, that they might know what real fellowship is and the real promise of reigning with You for eternity. And Lord, we just thank You for Your promises and for Your faithfulness, even to the church that that makes you want to spew it out of your mouth, Lord, we see your love as you write to them. And we thank you for that kind of love that goes beyond our comprehension. We thank you in your worthy name. Amen.